Hello, welcome to African Jeopardy and Happy New Year to our listeners. My name is Ife and I'm recording from Creole in Scotland. Hello, people. Thank you, Ife. My name is Dihia Belhabib. I'm the co-host of African Jeopardy and I am recording from Vancouver, Canada. Today, we actually do not have a theme or a topic that we're going to be discussing because we want to use this opportunity to reflect on our 2021 journey. So today, the theme or the title would be African Jeopardy reflecting on our 2021 journey so far. Yes, we are going to reflect. Um, I think this is quite important to always reflect on the past year, uh, more so than resolutions that we may or may not abide by. Uh, so I don't know how everybody feels about this, but we think that it's a great opportunity to have and just sit down and discuss what we have done, what we have, how we felt, um, especially as two minorities in, in research, it's quite important to always think about what we've done and think about the way forward. Absolutely, it is. I mean, when we started African Jeopardy, the reasoning behind it was because we thought it was, a, it was very important to, to, you know, to represent the voices from the continent and also ensure that we are able to tell our own stories in order to give the people out there different perspective on different issues. Because we know in this age of internet, you know, it's very dangerous to, to not try to represent accurate, um, to, to not represent, um, I, I was a term, what term am I looking for to hear? I don't, I can't I can find the word now. What's wrong with me? Um, Fair representation, I would guess. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think I'll go with that. Fair representation, especially when there's on, on issues relating to the African continent. And this was primarily the one of the motivation behind um, starting African Jeopardy in 2019. Absolutely. Let me ask you, Ife, let's do this this way. Let me ask you, um, what was the thing that, positively or most positively marked you this past year? In terms of um, the episode we've recorded so far? Um, anything, like even in, in, you know, in your own life, in your own research, in your own professional life or anything, basically, like it doesn't have to be an episode that we've recorded. You know, I think it is the realization that you know, your work is actually, I don't want to use the term impact, but that people that matters, people that could potentially, you know, implement policy are reading your work. And this was something that made me feel, should I say really powerful? And when I say powerful in a positive way, powerful in that I realized, okay, okay, this is actually a sign that, you know, you need to do more. You need to ensure that your research or what you do is actually representative of not only the voices of the region or the countries that you research, but can actually in the end be accessible to people that can use it 
And this is why I have always tried, at least in the last year, to ensure that apart from publishing, you know, um, in an academic journey, uh, in an academic journal, I also try to write an op-ed equivalent, which is usually more accessible, you know, shorter and can be assessed by the people that actually do the grand work. What about you? Absolutely. Um, I think that I made the sad but positive realization that complying was not always a great thing. Um, and in order to infer change, in order to, from a status quo that we've, we should be fighting, like a colonial status quo, lack of inclusion status quo, um, it is not possible to do that while complying with the said status quo. Um, I've come to the realization that there was indeed a lot of, I will say the word, a lot of racism and discrimination in particularly our field. Actually, not even particularly, but because every single field has some form of bias associated with it. But in our field, like expressing a voice as a minority or expressing your voice as a person from Africa is rather harder because of this um, plethora of organizations that actually set the scene before you even get have the opportunity to talk and, or speak. And I've come to the realization that in order for one to make meaningful change, um, we cannot necessarily comply. And that means that sometimes you are going to be called like a loose cannon, which happened this year. And it was something that was actually very positive at the end of the day. Um, it's an important realization to know that not complying sometimes is more beneficial in certain contexts than actually complying. Um, and that was a really important for me, um, which led me to write the piece in um, Nature, Ecology and Evolution about, you know, colonial research um, and how it translates in documentaries, for example, or mainstream media. Yeah, and that was actually a very important, um, uh, a very important op-ed because I read it and I enjoyed it. I also think that, I mean, there's nothing wrong with um, people challenging one's idea, for example, so long as they do it um, in a logical way and in a very respectful way without necessarily trying to undermine the view that that person is trying to put forward just because they do not agree with it. And then they might defer to either questioning your knowledge or your expertise or, or who you are or the work that you do. You know, I think, I mean, at least personally, I have learned when I have received um, um, constructive, not necessarily constructive uh, criticism, but when I engage with people or when people have engaged with my work in a constructive way without necessarily being rude or arrogant. But the issue of racism is, of course, something that I don't want to say we have to try to live with because the reality is that it is here to stay and one cannot help whether or not people like them because of their race, because this is the reality, you know, someone could just see you and they would decide, I would not listen to what you're saying. I would not read what you're writing, regardless of how legitimate it is because of your race. And you know, this is true, even in academia, the, the whole politics around citation, where people's 
work, amazing work are not cited because of the names, right? And 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 sadly, I mean, this is the reality that we live in. And and one way, at least for me, is for me, the decision is that in 2020, I will not only stay in my lane, I will look after myself, but importantly, I will, I will do my best to do what the late Congressman John Lewis from the US have said, you know, he he said one of the main things that's been accredited to him is that he said you, we should find a way to get in the way and also make good trouble. And for me, I will try in my space, in my time, through my work, to challenge, to continue to challenge the narrative out there about issues relating to maritime security, about issues relating to ocean governance primarily in the African continent, especially the ones that are actually not reflective of the realities on the ground, because it's very important that that the narrative about some of the issues that we talk about sometimes is actually reflective on what's happening on the ground, because that's also what's going to help the policymakers and implementers um, make decisions on some of these issues. I don't know what you think, but this is my view, you know, around the whole issue about racism and and rejection because of race or because of who you are absolutely the mind something that i learned this year is that um about bias um specifically implicit bias because you know racism when it's visible you can actually fight it but when it's not when it's covert when it's implicit it's very difficult to unfold and one thing that i've learned this year is that um you know, the mind makes its decision in milliseconds. And so you may not even, a person may not even be aware that they're biased against, you know, against a certain group of people. And so at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, it, it is it is an important realization that I made this year, but it's also a realization that helped me move forward in terms of combating it, you know, like, through, for example, the journal that you've contributed to, Poplar and Ivy, that uh, we founded this year, that is all about empowering the voices, the voices of minorities and underrepresented students of science or underrepresented researchers in science. It's a way to actually provide voices to people that may not have a proper platform to put their voice on, on at least for a first time. Yeah, I think that's an important. Um work that you're doing um the 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 contribution that i made was with um a colleague someone that i i met recently um during my field work um mr kofi or not kofi mr kwesi johnson mm -hmm. oh gosh i can't believe that i'm getting his name wrong <laughs> how do we edit this <laughs> I, we need to edit this later so Mr. Quasi Johnson and, and, and the platform you provided was actually a great one because it allowed him and myself to reflect on, on the realities of the impact of climate change. You know, talk about the futuristic, how this whole futuristic language of the impact doesn't reflect the reality in places in West Africa, places like Ghana, places like Sierra Leone, places like Cote d'Ivoire that have recently, you know, in recent time have really experienced some extreme um, things. So thank you so much for the work that you guys are doing with that platform. It's a good one because it, like you said, it enables um, um, 
underrepresented voices, the people that are living these realities to be able to bring their ideas to the fore for, for the global communities to read um, using your platform. So that's a great one too. Um, now I'd like us to, I don't know, maybe think about or reflect about some of the things we've actually done in terms of the episode that we've done in the last year, because it has varied. I remember in January, the yeah, January 2021, we we discussed um, Amadjarinchi um, with Dr. Kerry, and you know how the whole Amadjarinchi is the um, Islamic system of education. Well, you know that, so I'm going to leave you yeah. to to talk about it. Um, but you know the the security in terms of the the security situation that is linked to it, especially in West Africa, primarily Nigeria, and we talked about that. Um, with here in January. I don't know if you want to reflect on that. Um, yeah, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. It was very interesting for me, you know, like my grandfather, my late grandfather um, was taught at an Islamic school. So um, it's called, it was called the Zawiya in Algeria. So I, I believe it exists a little bit everywhere here and there. Um, it just has a different name and also a different dynamic maybe. Um, and obviously it's different in Nigeria than how it is in Algeria or in Morocco for that guide. I don't know how it works in Morocco, but it did really, you know, I always saw it as a negative, to be honest. I always saw it as something that was, um, you know, oppressive. But then when we did that episode, I've learned from another perspective um, that, it is necessary at times and it's 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 something that only has been called oppressive because of some colonial rule that didn't fit or some colonial you know perspective that didn't fit the local narrative at all um or new standards and also it it exists because it embraces a certain reality a certain local reality and it helps people survive that local or thrive and not only survive but also thrive in that in that reality. Um, when I'm talking about my grandfather, um, my grandfather was, I would say, uh, he learned how to write and how to read thanks to that because there was absolutely no other alternative. He learned how to count, you know, when he lived and he grew up during colonial times in Algeria and there was no way for him to go to a normal school, you know. And so it's it was an alternative, but it also it was also an, uh, it was also something that had existed for, you know, um, centuries in the country. And it was only shamed after the colonial rule was implemented. And I feel that it's something that I, you know, in the reality of that context, in the Nigerian context, for example, what I learned is that my bias was showing, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about myself here, but my bias was showing because I, I went into that episode thinking, oh God, you know, and I came out of that episode thinking, you know, completely, oh, you know, like more of the realization that it's not something that is actually bad, but it was, you know, it was, um, I, I cannot even find the word, but it was vilified. What is the word? Uh, 
vilified, is it? Vilified, yeah, it was vilified by a certain colonial narrative or by certain biases or the lack of knowledge of the, of the local, you know, context, for example, or the local history. Yeah, I, I felt that way about Dr. Kerry's presentation as well. Even as a Nigerian, I, I experienced, you know, what it is to to see the children, especially begging on the road, because this is, again, the narrative that from the outside, this is what you see. And automatically you see um, a case of people being taken advantage of. And that conversation we had with her actually helped me to learn about the real motive and the real intention behind it. And actually, I think it's something that is very relevant, something that needs to be, you know, in terms of retracing our steps, you know, to be um, invigorated or restarted in a way that, you know, the ancestors, if I can use it that way, intended, you know, the original motive. Because again, from the conversation, I, I, I feel that the original intent of starting the Amadirinchi program has been corrupted a lot. And this is why we have the problem that we have now. But I, I was also glad to hear from the conversation that there are people on the ground that are actually, especially people like herself as well, and the people that she engage with, that are actually doing their bit to make sure that um, things are done differently and also ensure that these children that are part of this program are actually getting the support and the education that they need and deserve. And then moving on to um, the next episodes that we talked about, we talked about in February with Dr. Charles um, De Kunle about pandemics and disaster management in Africa. Um, he worked for the International Federation of the Red Cross. And of course, this topic is very apt because, well, we're still here with the pandemic, but I absolutely enjoyed the episode because it sort of opened my eyes to not only what the International Federation of Red Cross were doing on the continent, but actually how much Africans were volunteering because they rely on, you know, volunteers to do some of the things they do. And, and you know, obviously we also learned about the challenges, but it really, opened my eyes to a lot of the things that I didn't know about the International Federation of Red Cross. I didn't know about how people are getting involved and actually being selfless, even in the midst of pandemic. Absolutely. I think it, it really raised the veil on how societies can be. You know, um, part of society, or some societies or some some communities will be competitive, um, will fight for toilet paper, um, and okay. others are going to be supportive of each other. And it just it just shows me how, you know, the nature of those communities. It's in disasters that at the end of the day, you know what your community is like. You know, the yeah. volunteering, the help of your neighbor, and all those sorts, or or being competitive, capitalistics, and. Uh, competitive and it shows the worst in humans yeah and i mean if i'm honest i mean it's it's obviously that we we have to sort of have an english name to it or give it an english name but growing up i know that we are very communal 
you know, in my culture, at least as an Igbo person, and also as a Nigerian, I saw, you know, how people would do anything for their neighbor, you know, when they're in trouble. And it might not necessarily um, be translated directly as, as volunteering, rather good neighbor, being a good neighbor sometimes, or just being selfless, knowing that you're trying to help someone in need. And so this was already something that is commonplace. But then hearing about it, that this is quite, you know, extensive. It's not just something, okay, because you're Nigerian. So this is something that is just common to Nigerians. But people organized in, in a really, <clears throat> in a very organized way at a time, they should be scared. Because, well, remember last year, we were still, the world was, was still trying to understand, even till now, still trying to understand um, COVID. So really understanding beyond COVID, the work that they were doing around disaster management and how people are supporting that work, even beyond COVID or the, the pandemic itself, how people are giving up their homes, how people are actually supporting other people at the time of crisis is really amazing to see. And I hope that, I mean, obviously, as we, we hope that disasters can stop, but as as long as they are still here, I hope that people are continuously willing to help, to support and not close their doors or their homes to people in need, not only on the continent, but also at the global level, especially when nations are becoming very individualistic or nationalistic about their borders and shutting everyone else out. Absolutely. And then in March, we, we talked with um, Dr. Aisha Aligombe about cybersecurity in Africa. And I mean, the conversation was not only apt, but I absolutely enjoyed a lot of the things that she said and the reflection about what different countries on the continent are doing and what they can do differently to ensure, um, you know, improve efforts about cybersecurity because it's, it's a very big issue. It's a very big problem on the continent and even at the global level. And I, I know, I mean, you cannot help throwing the maritime there, even in the maritime sector, especially with what happened in July in, in South Africa, where um, there was a cybersecurity attack um, at one of the ports, I think it's a Doba port, Doban port in South Africa. So uh, cybersecurity is a very big issue. And I was really um, impressed by the conversation that we had with Dr. Aisha Ali Gombe. It was, was mind-blowing, actually. I mean, like, let me stereotype a bit there, throw in a little stuff. Who hasn't received an email from some Nigerian prince claiming <laughs> you know, that you have, you know, like five million inheritance from someone somewhere? And um, that's basically how it started. But like her points on cybersecurity, like I've learned so much and I really encourage our audience to go back and listen to it because there are so many things that we learned from this particular episode. It's not only the maritime sector, uh, as you said, but it's really it, it into our own homes, you know. Yeah, and actually it made me worry about a few things about... <laughs> <laughs> on the website that I go to. And so actually what I do since that conversation, when I'm checking a particular <laughs> when I'm checking a particular website, what I do is I don't know if it helps, but I go like 
you know, the invisible one, you know, when you're, you're on your browser, there's this, I think, yeah, that's the ink, ink, yeah, the incognito window. Yeah. I, yeah. So I hope that actually, <laughs> I hope that makes a difference because otherwise I think, oh gosh, I, I, I am actually, yeah. Um, apart from the things that I learned from the conversation, I don't think I'm cyber aware, you know, when I, it comes yeah. to security. Absolutely. I'm like, not cyber aware at all like i've I've just something you know when you search something online um i don't know if you've noticed that there are patterns like on your on your social media feeds or something like the the actual ads that you see are related to the searches that you make online even if it's like that's why using an incognito window is sometimes very um very important um yeah and then in april yeah we talked about uh, minority expert voices and uh, Facebook diplomas. Yeah. Right. So uh, basically, we spoke about, um, you know, we spoke about trolling and how, um, and, you know, how our knowledge as minorities or underrepresented researchers was often questioned by people. Um, that don't see us as, you know, experts, whether in our field or any other field in research for that matter. And those people may not necessarily have the expertise, but because of that inherent bias that exists, um, we tend to be maybe trolled a little more than, you know, the average. And we talked about that and how to handle it um, and whether or not not feeding the trolls was actually something that should be, um, should be, actively practiced and what's what's the impact of that on me- on one's mental health yeah and and i have to say i have to be honest with you i think i remember this conversation and what led to it it was it was after was it after um it was the is this something piracy on netflix yes um um uh, I forgot the name of the documentary, which I is a know. good thing because we do not encourage people to watch it. Exactly. Well, yeah. Um, well, okay. Actually, this is a good thing that I don't remember the name because I haven't watched it. But good. I give my perspective. I, I remember how this made me feel. I give my perspective about it. Actually, I didn't give my perspective. I shared something when um, one of the professors that we know, um, I will call her Professor C., um, posted something about it. And then I commented to say that the people that I know in my network that have watched it and their feedback about it is absolutely that it was racist. It on it um, misrepresented stuff. It was not, you know, it doesn't actually um, represent the real reality. And, you know, where are the minority voices and 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 also basically it was also elitist because it was basically in the end based again based on people like you that have seen it and others that have given their feedback basically more or less concluded by saying do not eat fish which is absolutely um elitist because then how are other people that rely on fish for income going to make ends meet so i get that perspective and oh my god it was i see the floodgate opened on twitter people were saying things were writing things were saying a lot of rubbish and in the silence of the night you know it made me feel bad even though I don't know them I shouldn't care about these people and what they're saying but it it did affect me emotionally and I was so close to to um to deactivating my Twitter but I was like "Hmm, 
well, this will be them winning. But the interesting thing is also that I, I decided not to engage them further, yet they kept trolling. And, and, and so, yeah, I remember this was actually one of the, yeah, the motivations around that discussion. Um, yeah. And for me, actually, and, and the lesson I've learned, of course, is I'm not going to feed the trolls. It is. It is actually quite sad. I had the same experience on Instagram where um, because this whole episode really revolved about trolling on social media. And um, I was invited to write a piece in Nature, Ecology and Evolution yeah. on this particular documentary's impact on like people's, uh, you know, how, how it evolved to become a documentary and how it evolved to become a thing, you know, this perspective of colonialism, because it is a colonial perspective, right? And so yeah. um, I was invited to write about that. And then I was invited to, you know, give a TEDx on these particular issues. And be recognizing myself today as an expert in these things, um, and then on Instagram, seeing the page of the Sea Shepherd and seeing people's comments. And I commented and people from, you know, though that feed came to actually the TEDx recording. Um, but most people that had absolutely no idea what fishing was like, what fisheries are, you know, people that could not claim being experts allowed themselves the liberty, you know, to question some of the findings or, you know, as an expert myself. And it's basically, it's not even people that had the level of expertise or people that have studies or people that are being students or whatever. They were, they were people who had absolutely no clue what it was about that allowed themselves a voice, a judgmental, you know, one, um, you know, trawling and telling me how I was wrong when it people majority the majority of the people had nothing to do with africa had nothing to do with like impoverished communities had nothing to do with like the fishing as a culture in general would just say you know stop eating fish um become vegan yeah. veganism solution and these kind of things and it comes from a place of privilege really no it, absolutely yeah yeah it comes like being privileged to speak your voice without fearing repercussions is a white thing it is a white thing at the end of the day. It is a white privilege thing because, you know, um, it is also a, a place of privilege in terms of where you live and your community. If you have access to vegan, you know, um, alternatives, people in other places don't necessarily have access to vegan alternatives, but also it's a cultural thing where other people may not be really ready to eat vegan because of their culture because yeah. of that tradition they value much etc so it is a place of privilege where you have the choice and when i say choice it's like in the, it's broader the broader idea or the broader definition of choice it's like sometimes it is my culture and hence it's not a choice for me to make you know yeah. it's i can't choose anything else because this is the culture that i value this is how i was brought in and maybe i'm not ready to make other choices etc etc so it is this was this was extremely meaningful in terms of how it affected me as a person this particular episode as well yeah yeah but i learned so much from it i learned a lot from the conversation about not feeding the troll and and not even engaging actually now <laughs> regardless of how excited about um, i am about the topic i unless i'm the one that started the conversation 
then you know you can manage it in a way that when people are being disrespectful, you can tell them to not behave in that way or you can block them. I do not actually engage in conversations. I mean, as much as I would have wanted to because of that particular um, episode incident. But that also doesn't, I was worried at some point whether does this then mean that I'm silencing, silencing my voice indirectly. Um, but I don't think so because I still write about things that I'm concerned about. You know, I can, I can use my, my time effectively without stooping to people's level. I think that it's something, it's an important realization that you made because you don't play in the same league. You know, being a scholar, being a scholar in this field, you don't want to, as you said, scoop to their level, basically. You don't play in the same field. And so it's not necessarily them silencing you. It's just that it's it's taking like a, it would be taking energy and time trying to convince people that have already made up their mind in a rather uneducated manner, um, which is not going to work, you know. Um, I do know people often say, oh, you need to educate people, it's a responsibility, etc. But people may not want to be educated. You know, some categories of people won't, like these categories of people that we're talking about, these trolls, online trolls are not going to be educated or want to be educated at the end of the day. And we've seen this like no, no, no later than yesterday. If you remember the conversation on LinkedIn, you know, people who have already made up their mind go on social media where nothing gets erased. Once you post on social media, it's forever. Even if you delete it, it's going to be forever. There's always a trace. They pick, you know, people who will change their mind will say it. They will say the end, but those most of those people are not ready to change their mind. They come in with a preconception or a misconception already, and they're not ready to be educated on, on the topic. Yeah, that's true. But anyways, I'm I'm happy, I'm thankful for the lessons, and I hope that our viewers um benefited from listening to it as well. And then in May, we had um Dr. Nandule. Um, speak to us about energy security in Africa. And this was actually very, another topic that was insightful, you know, from the definition of energy security and indirectly, or should I, I dare say even directly questioning, you know, the whole definition. So the definition is around, is commonly defined as the uninterrupted availability of energy sources at an affordable price. And then in the conversation, we realized that um, over 600 million Africans do not have access to um, electricity or 900 million that lack access to clean cooking, um, clean cooking on the continent. So the question then becomes whether are we talking about does the definition of energy secu- security as the uninterrupted availability and accessibility and affordability of energy does it reflect the reality on the continent? And, and it was actually something that Dr. Nanule, I would say, powerfully argued that she noted that it should be more about accessibility than affordability. And so, again, speaking about whose definition would you engage with, whose definition 
um, reflects the reality. And I do agree with her. The reality on the continent is that it's not actually about affordability. Rather, it should be about accessibility because for us, for millions of people on the continent, they want access. We haven't actually gotten to the point where it is about affordability, rather the access, because millions do not yet have access. What and and what we say, and when we say like 600 million um, do not have access to electricity, or 900 millions lack access to clean cooking on the continent, there are the population, the total population of the continent. And correct me if I'm wrong, is about 1.2 billion people, right? Yeah, they're about. So we're saying the vast majority. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just like 50%. It's a vast majority of of African people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and that is the reality. And so then to to try to conceptualize and define energy security as being about affordability becomes problematic because for those that have access or those that ha might have limited access, their problem at this point, they're not asking about the price. Rather, they want an electric line to be able to come to them, to be able to come through to where they are. Um, I remember, I mean, in my village, the, 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 the amount of electricity we have, or should I say access to electricity, when I was a very young child, is completely different from when we, we lived in, in town or the cities that we lived in, in comparison to when we're in the village. Of course, this is completely different now. You have more or steady power supply in my village and other um, um village that is around mine but it wasn't the case before and therefore we have now gotten to the point where we, we might be able to be thinking about okay what about affordability why is it that my neighbor in the village do not or have not chosen to connect the line could it be because of the price we can't say that now we can't question that narrative now but maybe 15 years ago we, we wouldn't question it because it wasn't our interest. Our interest was actually about getting the line to the town. And so this is, I mean, for me at least, this was something that was really very insightful for me from the conversation we had with Dr. Nalule. Absolutely. It's, it just reminded me of all those years studying under the candlelight. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, uh, it's also the case because even when we have the access to electricity, unfortunately, <laughs> the power supply is not steady. So you can be sure that you have your your candle or your lamp um, ready or handy, and of course, generator. So many households in Nigeria. I can't speak for other countries. But so many households in Nigeria where I leave my states, where my parents leave, and then my, my village where I'm from, so many households have generator because, well, the power supply is not steady and sometimes it's not, it's not full current. So people would actually uh, decide to use their generators to, to you know, power their, their household equipment than the electricity itself. Something yeah. that, and, and, and it, it just, you just reminded me of something that I saw. So we went to, uh, we crossed West Africa by car a couple of years ago, and somewhere in the middle of the road between Guinea and Guinea-Bissau, we were heading towards Guinea-Bissau, in the middle of nowhere, 
and when I'm saying the middle, I'm saying in the middle of nowhere, there was nothing. There was no village, no paved road, nothing. It was the middle of nowhere. Suddenly we encountered a couple of, you know, poles with uh, solar powers on them. Mm. And I couldn't understand. There was like, it was some project by the uh, French Institute for, uh, for Research and Development. And I couldn't understand what it was doing there and if you can enlighten me maybe i'm missing something but there was a bunch of solar powers um solar power panels in the middle of nowhere there was n there was no you know tables not it was just solar panels and poles no village around around in that area nothing like there were there was barely a non-paved road and i always wondered what was that was it some sort of an abandoned project? Was it what? It, what is it like? Was it an attempt to bring in power somewhere where there was nothing? I mean, I wouldn't know. Um, I mean, I guess the question then is whether it's actually functional because it might be that this is a village's attempt to to bring power to their town or to their. There community. was no village though in the vicinity. There was like nothing. There, there was no factory or anything nothing absolutely nothing then i wouldn't i wouldn't know i think you depending on where the driver was from he might have or well or she if you had a female driver might have had might have been in a, a better position to to answer that question but a lot of the times you would see that it's not about the the solar panel itself but a lot of these um, communities, it's a pole. I don't know how it is in Algeria, but it's a pole that actually links the electricity to different communities, like a very tall pole. And then you see wires going round. But you might then be able to see houses to a point, you know, when you get to maybe a few kilometers, then not see anything at all. So I wouldn't, unfortunately, know um, why you guys. So what you saw, why is there in the first place? We had a couple of theories, but nothing really convincing. Okay. But it was just, you know, it was just funny to watch. Coming from Liberia, we drove from Liberia, then Sierra Leone, we could actually appreciate, and appreciate in the broader term, not necessarily the positive way, but we could actually appreciate the lack of access to, you know, energy and the lack of electricity, you know, markets lit by candlelight. Mm. Uh, at night and those kind and Liberia, you know, you know, electricity is so expensive in Monrovia, for example. Yeah. Uh, and and then when we got there, we saw those, you know, solar panels, and we were, you know, actually asking ourselves whether this was like an attempt to get funding from an organization they just placed here. They didn't engage with the communities. Like we couldn't. We had a few theories, but it was it was rather, it was sad to be honest. Okay, well, but the reality is that without really knowing more about it, it will be very um, difficult to deduce, you know, because it's possible it's there and then they will have a wire, underground wire. If it's a project connecting it to the community, then it's, it. I don't know, but mm -hmm. yeah, this is the reality of how projects are implemented sometimes these days, you know, funded and, and communities that are likely to benefit and do not actually make input and do not actually have a say on whether this is what they need or whether it's going to be beneficial to them. Okay, 
So in June, from talking about energy security in, in May, in June, we discussed disaster risk management in Africa. And we had this discussion with um, Ms. Tandy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, how to, we talked about um, the lack of resources, lack of water resources, for example, and how to avert conflict um, over, you know. Water. Water, exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and also this conversation also, again, helped us realize the extent of the work that the International Federation of the World Cross and um, Red Cross and Red Christian Societies, um, which um, at the time Miss um, Tandy worked for, were doing on the continent and also the importance of volunteers, you know, how volunteers have been assisting and supporting and how the organization themselves have been trying to cope and continue to do their work. Of course, the challenges that that COVID have, have, have posed is something that, that was highlighted, but regardless, they still soldier on and, and try to do their bit to support communities that, that need it in their point of need, especially well, we see how the impact of climate change is more or less more visible in so many countries across the African continent. And this um, June's conversation with Ms. Tandy was really an eye-opener for me in understanding what organizations and communities are doing to alleviate some of the burdens in relation to um, management of um, risk management in relation to water. Um, I think it's water security. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And what else? What did we talk about in July? Do you want to? Uh, religion and development in Africa. And I don't think I was at this episode actually. Um, oh yeah, this episode we talked with um, Dr. Aikande Clement Kwayu, and I absolutely enjoyed this episode because she talked about the role that religion have played. Of course, we had questions. I had some questions about the negative roles that um, religion have played and the erosion of uh, tradition and cultures. But also at the same time, she also highlighted some of the positive things that religion and religious organization have done and are still doing on the continent. And she even talked about in relation to COVID, the important role they are playing in Tanzania, they played in Tanzania in encouraging people to, you know, get vaccinated. So this was really something. I mean, if our audience or listeners have not listened already, I encourage you to to listen back to it. It's it was absolutely um, a topic that I enjoyed, and some of the insights might have also been from her book because she published a book on religion and British international development policy and. A lot of the examples from the discussion was from Tanzania. She talked about the role they have played in poverty alleviation, which is still a very big issue on the continent, and healthcare, peace, reconciliation. Of course, there's, there's so many conflicts and she, she provided some of the examples as well, how religious organizations have contributed and are still contributing. And I'd encourage you all, if you haven't listened already, to, to check it out. And then in August, we talked about fisheries, African fisheries policy in relation to 
RFMOs with Ms. Mpose. Pardon? With re, uh, uh, for just for our audience, with regional oh. fisheries management organizations, yeah. Yes, thank you, Dehir. Um, yeah, with Ms. Mposi, this was fire because I still remember talking <laughs> about the colonial on on the tone with which the European countries um, relate to African countries, and of course you can say um, colonial on the tones and the example she gave highlighted this point. But we also see this beyond. Um, European countries, but other countries that might not necessarily have colonial legacies, um, countries from Asia, the way they relate to the continent when it comes to fisheries policy is absolutely horrendous to the point that sometimes you question, are there, I mean, where are the, where are the policymakers, where are the African policymakers in the room when these decisions are made? You get frustrated, but yeah, she, she gave us a lot of examples that really made me bang my head on the wall, like, what the heck? She was on fire. Yeah. <laughs> she's always on fire, actually. That's what I appreciate about um, Posey. Like, she's she was very, she's very eloquent, but she calls out, you know, um, what needs to be called out. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, they, they talk about making good trouble and finding a way to, to get in the way. I have to say that in recording this episode, I, I mean, there were times when I was like, oh, gosh, oh, gosh, can she say that? I, I was like, in my mind, I'm like, oh, God, I hope we don't get to edit this. I can't edit it because I was worried about <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, was, I was scared for us, right? Because he was, I mean, the point she was making was not only powerful. You know, these are the realities, right? But sometimes you also worry, especially because she talked about a court case that was ongoing. Some of the things she's written about on Twitter as well, right? And so yes. I, I thought, oh gosh, oh gosh, oh gosh, you know, but <laughs> I learned so much from her. Unfortunately, from the conversation, I, I also learned that, the things that she talked about that was happening at the time when she was in the South Africa's uh, Fisheries uh, Commissioner Department mm -hmm. were still happening, not only, not about South Africa alone, but on the continent. I mean, and this is really disturbing, especially at a time when, when things are the way they are, you know, the extensiveness of depletion, the millions of people that rely on fisheries and, and the, you know, the potential risk that with depletion and not enough catch, the, the potential risk that this can have on peace and security, because when people have nothing to eat, when people do not have a source of income and the government, there's no social security, the government is not supporting them, they are more susceptible to engaging in crime when the opportunity arises. And this is the worry. And this is why, I mean, the continent needs to do something radically different for a change. I, I think they can't afford to continue with the business as usual narrative. Absolutely. Um, it is, there was uh, one of the conclusion of the paper on narco trafficking in fisheries that we have reached that we shouldn't always criminalize people mm -hmm. um, because sometimes it's a lack of alternatives that drives them to criminality. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So that's the whole point, right? So, but the reality is still that the rule of law have to prevail, right? So, yeah. and this is why the whole, you know, when you're talking about these things, you have to start from what it costed. And we're looking at, okay, depletion and then loss of employment. 
and then no safety work and then no support from the state. And then the only option becomes if, if they are fishermen using their knowledge of the sea to, to be able to support their families. And, and this becomes a problem. Of course, when the law catches up with them, the law would want to do what the law needs to do. And whilst this is something that needs to happen, it is also very important. And this is why I like the conversation we're having now, the conversation we had with Ms. Imposi as well. This is why the law have to understand what is causing these things and how have we failed? And then this might then affect their ability in terms of the policies that are put in place to ensure that the potential of future criminals are not, you know, you do not fall into that cycle. But it will be very difficult, I mean, at least talking from this perspective now, to, to make the assumption that when, when a criminal is caught, the law should just let the person go because, well, they are doing it because, well, there's no fish. That's the Absolutely not, thing. yeah. I, I think that by criminal, you know, like by criminalizing, it means like militarized enforcement, for example, as opposed to addressing the actual issue, not the symptoms. Oh, yeah, the, the enforcement has already been criminalized. I mean, you know this already. The, the yeah. recent paper written is sadly being criminalized for different reasons. But again, this is the whole point. When mm -hmm. governments of the African continent are, are trying to address the symptom, and when I say symptom, piracy and amorgrassy, because they are prioritizing it. Uh, anything around maritime security on the continent actually prioritizes and centers piracy and amorgrassy, as they should, right? But it shouldn't be the only thing. If anything, they should be centering threats to depletion, because in doing so, I mean, of course, going together with rule of law, enhancing enforcement cap capabilities, but at the same time, ensuring um, depletion or the things that threaten depletion are addressed and, and social safety nets are provided for the people. This is the only way they can ensure that future pirates are averted. I say this because, well, for so many years, we can see that at least you could say that the international communities have tried and successfully so to stem the tide of piracy of the Gulf of some of the Gulf of Aden or Somalia, right? Mm -hmm. However, in the last five years or so, I mean, there's never really been um, incidents, a troubling incident as occurred off of the coast of Somalia. But in December, just December 2021, the UN resolution there was a un resolution to continue the presence you know to continue the, uh, the international cooperation around um stemming the ties of piracy in somalia why is that why is that because of course it's necessary if they leave the pirates will come back because you're not solving the problem on land you haven't i mean what have you done in terms of improving social security or, or socioeconomic livelihoods of the people on the ground. Of course, again, like I said, the rule of law is relevant. It's important to ensure that the enforcement aspect is there, but without also trying to do things to improve livelihood, to ensure employment opportunities are there, once you leave, it will be free for all again. And this is why they'll probably not leave. And I mean, it's, 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 it's as clear as they like to see that the, the current approach that centers militarization alone, that centers armament alone is not sustainable. But the question is, why exactly are they not doing anything about it? Absolutely. 
it's it's really it's striking even the way you put it right now like it's really striking if they leave piracy is just going to come back why yeah. the actual problem has not been solved yeah on that yeah. so it's very that's easy a sad reality. You put it, it's very easy to understand yeah that's a sad reality um and then in September, again, something similar. We talked about artisanal fishers. Artisanal fisher in Ghana, an underrated component in a nation's um, um, nation's development with Mr. Kwesi Johnson, um, the person that also co-authored the paper on your outlet about the climate thing. And Absolutely, the and inviting the audience to read it. Like it's in Poplar and Ivy, it's an amazing piece that you have written with uh, Mr. Kwesi Johnson, yeah. Oh yeah, and we'll share the link at the end of, um, when we share the podcast link as well. But the conversation um, that we had with him also highlighted what we've already, at least through this conversation so far, have shown how fisher folk are not treated um, fairly when it comes to um, government policy in Ghana and how they are their voices are not necessarily centered when making decisions that affect them. Again, I will encourage everyone to listen to it if you've not already done so. You get to hear more. You know, it's it's actually a good thing after listening to Ms. Mpozi's August um, discussion and then listening to September and Mr. Quasi's discussion that centers Ghana is actually a good way to, to start. And then in... Um... In October, we talked about Nigeria's suppression of piracy and other and and uh, the Maritime Act of 2019, and how it was uh, you know how it reflected into maritime security. Um, yes, we had that conversation with Miss um, Constance Omabemi, and the conversation was actually um, very insightful and very clear because while she recognized that it's a good step, she was also able to say that there's actually no evidence to suggest that this POMO Act have deterred um, piracy and amorbracy. And, and rightly so. I mean, the argument would be that it's too early to, to, to measure success, but, but at the same time, they, the Nigerian government or the Nigerian state have been able to um, prosecute a couple of cases relating to piracy since the act was established and it also makes them to be able to make that legitimate argument that at least they have a, an act that can be used to address piracy and robbery I see again I this have actually, a question. please um yeah I have a question this is I think an opportunity to address the conversation that we had yesterday mm -hmm. um is Nigeria ever going to be like Somalia or is Nigeria and Somalia similar when we talk about piracy? And I do know the answer, but I just would like you to address this particular issue for our audience as we have the opportunity to discuss this right now. Of course, Nigeria is not and would never be like Somalia. And I'm not even saying this as an academic. I'm saying this because when you also speak to the people on the ground, they would refute, they would not. I mean, let's look at it from the perspective of, you know, comparison. And in the case of Somalia, it was a failed state in 1991 when all these things, you know, from 1991, when all this, you know, the sort of the building blocks of what we see in the later year, the insecurity and the exacerbation of, are you fishing that is illegal or unregulated fishing by foreign vessels encroaching areas reserved 
for artisanal vessels that actually motivated vigilantism. You know, people, communities that were frustrated and decided to protect their fish stock. And also, again, toxic waste dumping, frustration from people led to vigilantism. Unfortunately, this then morphed to you know, piracy and amorbracy, whereby innocent vessels were attacked. It was taken over by militias. And this is the reality, right? In comparison to Nigeria, again, the narrative between how we got here and how the Gulf of Guinea got here is completely different. There's no failed state, at least in the way that failed state is described in the Gulf of Guinea, the 19 coastal state. There's not a single coastal state uh, that is a failed state, regardless of the argument. And there's no evidence to suggest that they are. And then in 2013, coastal states in the region, including their landlink countries, their landlink neighbors, came together um, through the Yaoundé um, code of conduct, saying that they want to address this problem. We didn't see that in the Gulf of Aden at the time. So again, there's no comparison. And there is actually active evidence of countries in the region, including Nigeria, working actively to solve the problem of piracy and with positive results. You can't, there is nothing, there is nothing. And this is also why we haven't seen, in terms of the argument around the resolutions, the many resolutions, over 20 resolutions and um, UN Security Council presidential statement on, on Somalia. We haven't seen that many in the Gulf of Guinea because you cannot compare the two of them. So anyone that actually, and this is an argument that has been made, people in the shipping industry, they've been calling for a Somali-style response in the Gulf of Guinea, but that is illogical because the realities are not the same. You cannot compare them. The regions in the Gulf of Guinea, including Nigeria, are actively working together to solve a problem. Yes, they require international support, but you cannot replicate the things that that worked or is working in Somalia and the Gulf of Guinea because the realities are completely different. And regardless the argument anyone is, is sort of trying to put forward, even if it's the legal one, then the question is why isn't that legal argument used to replicate the Somali style response in the Gulf of Guinea? Because you can't use it. So you still have to make the political argument. They are not the same. Absolutely, absolutely. Um... I just wanted to reflect on this question because we had a conversation yesterday with uh, someone that claims to be an expert, but who clearly is not. Um, no, but good for them. No, they are yeah, good for them, you know, but that's the thing. People's view is their view, right? I have said what I've said, but then the other person listening can say this is crap and, and have their perspective and that's fair enough, right? And so... I think I don't actually have a problem with people not agreeing with me, so long as they are not disrespectful about it. And that was a problem. Somehow I feel that the person you're referring to was quite disrespectful and and condescending, or should I say mansplaining? Mansplaining, that is is why I brought it, because um, I, I would love to agree that, you know, one there are always differences in opinions but the opinions have to be well educated and when someone isn't well educated on the matter but claims to be an expert can be quite it, it can be quite dangerous but this was beyond this was like an, an active act of mansplaining that was and there's my kids coming in <laughs> hello Uh, there is no monster, I promise you. 
I can't come. I'm recording, but I'm gonna come in soon, okay? Go with Papa. Go with Papa. Go with Papa. Go. Go. Go with Papa. Go. The joys of recording when you have kids around. Absolutely. There is. She wants to stay with Mama, so I will apologize to the audience the choice of having kids at home. No problems at all. I think we can we can have baby with us. Okay. And so in November, we talked about um, security. We talked about gender and security in, in Africa, the Nigerian experience with Miss um, uh, Ruth Okubeni, the acting executive director of the Clean Foundation Nigeria. And the conversation obviously talked about human rights issues and the role that women are playing in security. And something that I found very fascinating about it is actually how the colonial, again, the colonial influence, it, it, it rears its head everywhere. The colonial influence in, in sort of influencing the laws that establish some of the security sectors. And, and this is how or where this exclusion, exclusion of women when it comes to um, security sector started. And then she talked about, she gave an example of the police and how their organization have supported with the rewriting of the, 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 the law around this, um, the Nigerian police. And now it's now more gendered in terms of its recruitment and allowing women to join. And again, if you have not listened, I will encourage you to listen. I learned so much from this and I found it really fascinating because if this is a problem with the police, for example, it means that if we go to the different security sector, the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, you're likely to find the same thing. And this is just in Nigeria. And so we have 54 um, countries on the African continent, 55 if you add, um, is it Western Sahara? Um, yeah, okay, let's go with 54 for now. Um, <laughs> majority of them were colonized. You never know who's listening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So majority of them were colonized, right? And so if, if it means if you go through their laws, you will still find that this whole exclusion of women, the, the lack of recognition of the differences between men and women and the centering of men in security forces started from how the institutions were formed. And this was something that I found very fascinating from the conversation we had with Miss Ruth. And I encourage you to listen if you have not done so. And finally, in December. In December, yeah, go ahead. In December, we talked about um, China-African relation in Africa in relation to fish meal investment in the Gambia. Do you hear? Do you want to talk a bit more? Oh. I wasn't at that particular. Um, I wasn't at that particular conversation. And then the kids are over again. Wow, you look like the angel of death. <laughs> Close the door behind you, please. Close the door behind you, please. Okay, so in this particular episode, we talked with um, Mr. Mustafa Mane about um, you know investment of Chinese companies in fish mill industry in the Gambia. And it was absolutely, you know, it was very frustrating to listen to. We've talked about over-exploitation of fisheries in Africa. We've talked about illegal fishing. And now you're seeing literally people fishing 
to be able to feed fish. So depriving human of fish to eat, to be able to use in manufacturing, you know, fish meal that would then be used in farming fish. He was really frustrated. And there was something he, he said that stuck with me, apart from, of course, the link he made between depleting fisheries and migration to Europe. Something he said that stuck with me was in relation to the pollution that is coming from this industry. He said that when he was growing up, when he had rashes, his mother would ask him to go to the ocean to wash himself because it would clear the rash. And now he said that the ocean that once cured my rash is now giving me rashes. And it was deep for me. I felt, damn, you know, beyond all these things we talk about, there are spiritual, there are cultural implications of the, you know, the, 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 apart from, you know, the, the, the degradation of the ocean environment that is coming from all this activity. I was, it was a frustrating episode to listen to. And unfortunately for my part, I later found that, that my network was crap. I mean, but it was great. It was, I learned so much from speaking to him. You know, every time, like to our beloved audience, like people who ask, how can we contribute? How can we? And I do know that the, the actions of like consumerism, like or, or the lack of consumerism thereof may not necessarily have um, a major impact as long as not a lot, you know, as long as the number of people isn't that, much, you know, that great. But one example that I can say that I can mention is that when you every time you eat, you know, farmed salmon, for example, just farmed salmon, you can think about the Gambians and how they feel about their fish because farmed salmon uses most of the time farmed salmon uses, you know, fish feed. And that's what, you know, if you just mentioned, you know, farmed salmon uses fish feed. So the amount in some aquaculture systems, the amount of fish that it requires to produce one kilogram of fish is four kilograms. So you need to kill four kilograms of wild fish to produce one kilogram of farmed fish. I'm talking about only some forms of aquaculture. So this is something that affects people around, like the people that require fish as a form of livelihood, as food, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also a way to understand that it goes way, like it's not because it's the Gambia, it's a mini small country off the coast of in the coast of uh, west africa that you know it doesn't affect us or we're not contributing to that the moment you eat farmed fish you you have to assume that that farmed fish has been processed or has required the level of wild fish and that wild fish might unfortunately come from west african waters yeah that's the sad reality um but i'm also um i think i've read something about fish farms using not using fish at least i know that there are some absolutely. that say there's pardon absolutely yes yeah so i guess the question then comes the next question is about labeling maybe one way we can help is to check <laughs> when we're buying it it might be strenuous because some of us when we go to the shop we just want to go in and out but you might want to do your bit by checking the labels. This might help put pressure on any of the, the companies because sadly, even though from the conversation, and we did share a link to a Greenpeace report on the beneficiaries of all this, um, the, the fish meal products from the Gambia, from West Africa in Europe, and so many 
um, European countries and companies, even here in the UK. Um, I don't want to make a mistake and, and name a wrong one, but some of the um, companies even here in the UK, I, um, it wasn't about Canada. So, but in Europe, a few countries were listed, and we did provide the link on the report uh, of the report on the episode. This is the December episode, and again, I will encourage you to read it if you're interested in it. Um, some of the con companies or countries that they listed were in France, Norway, Denmark, Germany, um, Spain, Greece, and the United Kingdom. And I'll encourage people that are interested in this topic to read the report and also see how what they can do differently. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening to us. And I hope that the 2022 will be kind to us all. As 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 a, a person, as Ife, I have decided that I'm going to be kinder to myself and love myself a bit more. And that would obviously mean that I'm not even going to engage with people online, especially when I find that they're they're not there to learn, whether they're there to just um, play the role of bullies or trolls. They hear me. I, it's the same thing, actually, thanks to an Instagram filter. Uh, <laughs> I've decided to treat myself like a queen, whatever that means, you know. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, Ife, uh, before we started recording, I want to be selfish, you know, for once. Just treat yeah. myself. I, I mean, I've been selfish in the past, but not the right way necessarily. But um, I want to be selfish for once and not feel guilty treating myself well. That implies learning how to say no, for example, you know, learning how to disengage from people that do not necessarily require a certain amount of energy to be spent on them and things like that. Yeah, I agree. Um, so our listeners, thank you so much for always being here. You know, you have you have been here and I'm actually very excited anytime I check and there are people listening. It's a privilege to have you listen to our blabbings <laughs> sometimes. So thank you. And we wish you a very happy new year um, and all the very best. We wish you good health. We wish you every happiness. And if you want to be selfish, like the here and myself. I mean, why not? Look after yourself and be good to yourself too. Absolutely. Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, thank you for staying with us and take care.